My name is Adam. I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here. And you might be thinking, well, I'm glad I don't have your job today. <laughs> the se- former senior pastor just said, Amen. <laughs> Let me set it up this way. In 1998, Barbara Kingsolver wrote a novel called The Poisonwood. Bible. Now in this book, she tells the story of an American family, Nathan Price, his wife Orleana, and their four daughters who moved to the Congo to serve as missionaries. Now Nathan is a minister and a a preacher and he is determined in his own words to save Africa for Jesus. But he is so hard-headed and so arrogant that he refuses to learn anything about the new country uh, to which he is moving. He doesn't learn anything about their culture, their history, their customs, or their people, and it causes him and others all kinds of grief and difficulty. For example, early on in his uh, time there in his sermons, he stresses the importance of baptism. He repeatedly calls on the people to be baptized in the river. Now, after weeks of pleading about this, and no one comes forward to be baptized, and he kind of puts it down to the hard-heartedness of the people. What he doesn't realize is that a couple of weeks before he arrived in the Congo, a child was taken by a crocodile in the river. And so there's no way that anyone is getting in the river. Then later in uh, his time there, after he's picked up a little bit of basic language, he begins to use the the Congolese phrase in his sermons, Tata Jesus is Bengala which means Mr. Jesus is precious. But he doesn't realize that he is mispronouncing the word Bengala. And he's actually saying, Mr. Jesus is poison. And it causes all kinds of difficulty and confusion. Now the reason I tell you this is because when we hear this passage from 1 Peter, some of us, many of us, have an experience like the Congolese people. We don't hear it for what it really is, precious. We hear it as poison. I mean, it contains words and phrases and ideas that are offensive to our modern sensibilities. Words like submit and obey and gentle and quiet, weaker partner. It seems to give us a vision of marriage that is quaint or outdated at best or harmful at worst, because it seems to allow for abuse and violence. It seems to imply the inferiority of women and the superiority of men. And so when we hear this passage, we don't hear it as precious, we hear it as poison. And this is why the challenge for us today is to properly understand these verses. Now to be sure, they have been twisted and misused to say what they're not saying to justify what cannot be justified. But this does not mean that we should reject them. It means we should seek to properly understand them. Because the truth is, as Christians, we believe that the Bible is the very word of God to us. And it has been given to us by God for our good. And that includes All of it, every single part of it, not just the bits that we like, not just the bits that sound 
palatable to us? All of it. And that includes this passage from 1 Peter, which gives us God's vision for marriage. And when we properly understand this vision and properly apply this vision, it truly is something beautiful. Now, the truth is, we really do need this instruction from God. I mean, before we dismiss this passage as poisonous, before we dismiss it as outdated or oppressive, we should be humble enough to admit that we need help when it comes to this area of our lives. Just consider the state of marriage in Australia right now. Less people are getting married statistically than ever before. People are getting married later in life than ever before. And in 2017, around 49,000 marriages in Australia ended in divorce. But it's not just a, a problem out there, it's a problem for many of us as well. I mean, for some of us, if we were honest, we would admit that our marriages are not in a healthy or a good place right now. Some of us would say that we have friends who we know their marriage is struggling. And so let's not dismiss this passage so quickly. Let's not assume we've figured out a better way because I would humbly suggest that we haven't. And I would suggest that the problem is not with this passage. The problem is that we don't really know what it's truly saying and we have not seen it truly and properly applied and lived out. In fact, it was G.K. Chesterton, the uh, British intellectual, that said the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Now, you'll notice that these verses are specifically addressed to husbands and wives. In fact, the sermon title for this week is, is creatively titled, Husbands and Wives. You know, I just had a moment of brilliant creativity when I was titling this one. Now, maybe you're thinking, oh man, I came to church on the wrong day. I'm not married. I mean, what could this possibly have to do with me? Or maybe you're thinking, I'm not married anymore. I'm not interested in, in hearing this. But remember what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Marriage is to be thought of highly among the people of God. Not because being married is better than being single or more spiritual than being single, but simply because of what marriage represents. The marriage relationship points us to the deeper relationship between Christ and the church. And that is a marriage that we are all part of, no matter our relationship status. Also, if you are not married today, the truth is you might be one day. And so it's important to understand the significance of marriage before entering into it. Also, as a church family, we are called to love and support and pray for one another. And we can better pray for the married people in our church family if we understand the significance of marriage and what is involved. This is an important passage for all of us. And the key to understanding this passage is found in the small phrase at the beginning of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 7. Peter writes and he says, Wives, in the same way, verse 1, 
And then he says, husbands, in the same way, verse 7. Both husbands and wives are being called to follow the example of someone else, to emulate something else. And the question is, what is that? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. It's Jesus. Do you remember last week when Peter began to talk about how we are to live as Christians in this hostile world? And he said that we are to follow the example of Jesus, verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Peter is looking back to verse 21. He's saying, husbands, wives, you are both to follow the example of Jesus. Now, husbands and wives will be called to follow Jesus in different ways, as we'll see. But they are both being called to follow the example of Christ. Now, this means... Now, what wives are being called to in this passage, what husbands are being called to in this passage, it's not a trap, it's not degrading, it's not beneath us, it is Christ-like. It is the doorway to becoming a Christ-like wife and a Christ-like husband. And in fact, those are the two headings under which we will explore this text. A Christ-like wife, verses 1 to 6, and then a Christ-like husband in verse 7. And so let's begin with what Peter says to the wives in verses 1 to 6. Verse 1, he says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now notice right up front that this is a word to wives. Wives, submit yourselves. Peter's not talking to husbands. He does not say, husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. In fact, nowhere, nowhere does the Bible say that. The only commands given to husbands are to love their wives, to cherish their wives, to protect their wives, but never, ever to make their wives submit to them. In other words, submission is not a God-given prerogative to be demanded by the husband. It is a God-given calling to be embraced by the wife. Also notice it does not say women submit to men. This is not a blanket call for all women to defer to all men. This has nothing to do with the workplace or with society. It is talking specifically in the context of marriage. And the instruction that is given to wives is submit yourselves to your own husband. And so the question is, what does that mean? What is being called for in this verse? Now, because this verse is so open and has been twisted and misused, first let me tell you what it does not mean. Now, it does not mean a wife should do whatever her husband says, especially if it is evil or sinful. This is not a robotic woman who cannot or should not think for herself. After all, her example is not her husband. It's Jesus. Nor does this mean that a wife should not try to influence her husband. The whole point of verses 1 to 2 is how a wife can influence her husband. Nor does it mean that a wife must quietly endure abuse or abandonment. If abuse is taking place in, a, in marriage, submission does not mean that you put up with the abuse. 
It is entirely appropriate to get help, to take steps to put an end to the abuse or to extract yourself from that situation. So let me be clear what this verse is not saying. It's not saying a wife should always agree with her husband. It's not saying a wife should not think for herself or that she should tolerate abuse. So what is it saying? What is being called for in this verse? Well, the word submit means to come under or or to follow. It means to willingly follow the leadership of another. So last week when Peter talked about submission to the government, it means that we follow and respect the laws of the land. When it came to bosses, it means we submit ourselves to their authority. When it comes to marriage, it means a wife willingly follows the leadership of her husband. She supports him as he sets the pace for the family. And this means that if you're a husband, you need to be an intentional, godly leader. Most women you talk to long for their husbands to be the spiritual pace setter of the home, to lead the way in Bible reading and in prayer, in forgiveness, in fun, in church attendance, and so forth. Husbands are to set the pace. But often the challenge for many wives is that there's nothing to keep pace with. Often wives are left in the very difficult position of trying to follow someone who isn't leading spiritually. In fact, this is exactly the situation Peter is writing into. He's writing to wives whose husbands, verse 1, do not believe the word. In other words, the wife has become a follower of Jesus, but the husband hasn't. The wife is trying to live a godly life, but the husband isn't interested. Now, this is surely one of the most painful circumstances that a woman can find herself in. And it begs the question, what should a wife do when her husband is not on the same page spiritually? How should she treat him? How should she respond to him? And the answer, according to Peter, is a life of godly submission. Which means that rather than nagging him or berating him or being condescending to him, she is to win him without words, by her behavior. She is to live a life of purity and reverence, literally respect. Now this doesn't mean she can't talk to him about Jesus, of course she can and of course she should. But the idea is that she will win him, draw him to Jesus, not by wearing him down with her words, but by winning him over with her Christ-like behavior. In other words, the best way to change your spouse, and this is not nice and it's not easy, but it's to change yourself. The best way to influence a spouse who doesn't know Jesus is to show them the difference that Jesus makes in your life. Now, if this describes your situation, if you're married to a man who's not a believer, and I can't imagine the pain and the discouragement and the loneliness that you might feel, but the promise for you in this verse is that God can use your joyful, respectful, humble attitude to reach your husband's heart. And you know, there are so many examples of this truth in action, both from church history and in our church family. For example, Augustine was a a theologian in the first century, and he wrote an autobiography which went on to become one of the most influential books ever written. It was called The Confessions of Saint Augustine. 
And buried in the narrative of this book is a moving tribute to his mother, Monica, and the influence that she had in bringing her unbelieving husband, Patricius, to faith in Jesus. This is what Augustine wrote about his mum. He said, she served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, at the end of his earthly life, she gained him for you. Now, you might feel like you're a long way from that point. You might feel like your situation is is hopeless, but Peter wants to encourage you to not give up. He wants you to continue to trust God, even in the midst of great difficulty. In fact, this is why he gives us an example from the Old Testament in verses 5 to 6. It's important for us when we walk through difficult things like this to know that we're not alone and to know that we're not the first people that have endured this. And so Peter points to the example of Abraham's wife, Sarah. You know Abraham, the the great patriarch of the Old Testament? There's a particular example that he points to from their life in Genesis 18 when they were both very old. And God made them the promise that they would have a child. Now when Sarah heard this promise, she laughed because of how improbable it was. But even in the midst of her laughter, she did not disrespect or mock Abraham. She didn't say, God, serious? Have you seen the old fella recently? I mean, come on. She still referred to him with respect. And Peter's point is that respect for Abraham was part of the fabric of Sarah's life. Despite Abraham's imperfections, which were many, despite Abraham's disobedience, which was significant, twice he disowned Sarah to save his own skin. Twice. And yet, Sarah still treated him with respect. And Peter calls Christian wives to follow her example. Verse 6, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. He's saying keep doing what is right. Keep living a good life. Don't give up. Don't give in to fear. Don't take control. Don't manipulate the situation. Trust God. And even if your husband doesn't recognize the beauty of Jesus, the difference that Jesus makes in your life, God does. God sees what you're doing and to him it is precious. In fact, that's what Peter says in verses three to four. Now, I won't read the the verses again, but Peter is essentially making the point that the way a wife will attract her husband to Christ, it's not through the way that she looks, but it's through the way that she lives, through her life. Now, this is a significant verse because most women from a young age feel the pull of beauty. Now, think about how much time and energy and money is spent trying to achieve or maintain attractiveness. According to some research, Aussies spent $22 billion on their appearance in 2016. And we will spend countless hours in front of the mirror. Not to mention the money that's spent on ads and magazines and social media accounts that are devoted to appearance and external beauty. Now, the point is, it's not that God is opposed to external beauty. Look at the world that he made. It is stunningly beautiful. Look at the people that he made, the diversity, the beauty. 
the point. It's not that God is opposed to external beauty. It's not wrong to do these things, to do your hair, to wear wear jewellery, to put on nice clothes. It's wrong to focus only on these things, to pursue external beauty and neglect internal beauty, to know everything about clothes and makeup, but, but to be ignorant about godliness. Because according to God, true beauty is found not in your clothes, but in your character. It is, verse 4, the beauty of your inner self. It's a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. Now this gentle and quiet spirit has nothing to do with being shy. I mean this word gentle simply means to be humble as opposed to harsh. And the word quiet does not mean to be softly spoken but it means to be peaceful. To pursue peace instead of creating war. And so this is not anything about our personality. I mean, you can be extroverted, enthusiastic, funny, talkative, and you can still have a gentle and quiet spirit if you are humble and not harsh, if you are peaceful and not provocative. Because according to God, true beauty is deeper than what you look on the outside. It is who you are on the inside. And I think this forces us to ask some questions, all of us, men, Let me start with you. What kind of beauty do you praise? If you're married, how are you helping your wife to pursue inner beauty? If you're a dad, how are you doing this for your daughters? If you're single, what kind of beauty are you looking for? Women, what kind of beauty is most valuable to you? What kind of beauty are you actively trying to cultivate in your life? What are you devoting your time, your money, and your energy to? The beauty that ultimately matters is inner beauty. And you know, we all know this to be true because a woman who loves Jesus, who is pursuing godliness, who honors her husband, that woman is radiant. And even as the years go by, she only becomes more beautiful. Because as verse 4 says, this beauty is unfading. It'll never go out of fashion. It'll never diminish. It'll never fade. Now before we move on to husbands, let me just say a final word to wives. If you are married to a man who is an unbeliever, this passage is in the Bible to remind you that you are not alone. That God sees what you're doing and it's precious to him. And so don't give in and don't give up. God can use your ordinary, everyday faithfulness to reach the heart of your husband. If you're married to a godly man, he's doing his best to follow Jesus and to lead your home, be sure that you regularly cheer him on. Be an encouragement to him. Be responsive to him. Pray for him. Maybe you could take the time to tell him that you appreciate him. If you're not married, if you're a a woman and you're not married and you'd like to be, can I encourage you to look for these qualities in a potential spouse? Don't settle for looks or money or muscles or charm. Look for an obvious and a growing relationship with Jesus. Don't take on a guy as a discipleship project. He will be the spiritual leader of your home and the nurturer of your children. Look for obvious integrity. 
If you see a, a, a young man and he cheats in board games, he, he cheats on his taxes, that should be a warning signal to you. Look for integrity. Look for the ability to lead. He doesn't have to be captain of the rugby team. But he needs to be able to think for himself, to weigh up options and to make good decisions. And look for obvious humility. Can he put others before himself? Can he laugh at himself? Look for the way he treats children and strangers. Look for the way he treats waiters and waitresses. The point is, in your search for a potential spouse, prioritize the internal and the spiritual, which is the internal and the spiritual, which lasts forever, over the external and the material, which is temporary. So in verses 1 to 6, Peter gives instructions to Christian wives. Then in verse 7, he turns to husbands. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute. Wives get six verses and husbands get one? What gives? Now I don't know exactly, but maybe it is that Peter knows what all good wives know. You've got to keep it simple for the men. Now, if Peter's instructions to wives could be summarized with the word submission, then his instruction to husbands could be summarized with the phrase, be considerate. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate. Now, this literally means understand your wife. Get to know her her needs, her desires, her wants, her hopes, her fears, her dreams, what she likes, what she doesn't like, how she feels loved, how she feels unloved. Someone once said, you should have a PhD in your wife by your 10th anniversary. (laughs) Husbands, have you studied your wife? You might know a lot about the financial markets or rugby or cars or cricket or whatever it is, but do you know your wife? Now, if you don't know where to start, this might be scary, but ask her. (laughs) Sit down and ask her these questions and listen without responding. Is there anything I could do? Is there anything I need to know that would make me a better husband? If our marriage could improve in one area, what would it be? What can I do to start loving you better? What should I stop doing to love you better? And listen. And take action. Get to know your wife. And listen, this is going to take time. You might have to give up some hobbies. You might have to say no to some opportunities. In fact, this is why Peter says, Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives. Not room with, live with. A husband needs to devote time to his wife. It's been said, nothing will transform your marriage like time. Time is the currency of relationship and husbands need to devote time to their wives. Peter goes on and he says, treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Now, we read the phrase weaker partner and we start to taste poison in our mouth again. But Peter is simply acknowledging the reality that men are generally physically stronger than women. 
He's not saying that women are intellectually weaker or emotionally or spiritually or morally or any other way. He's simply saying that generally speaking, men have a strength advantage. And this places women in a vulnerable position. And this is actually reflected in the statistics around domestic violence. Of course, both men and women are victims of domestic violence, but in Australia, one in six women will experience domestic violence, compared to one in 16 men. One woman is killed every nine days by her partner, compared to one man in every 29 days. Any instance of domestic violence is reprehensible, but it's true that women are more vulnerable. And this is why God says to husbands, respect your wives. Be gentle with them. Cherish them. Honor them. Use your strength to protect them. Treat them as equal because they are equal. That's what Peter says. He says they are heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. You might be physically different, but you are spiritually equal. You worship the same God. You trust in the same Savior. You are empowered by the same Spirit. You read the same Bible. You stand in the same grace. You have the same future. You are partners and co-heirs. So enjoy life with God together. Husbands, this verse is in the Bible because it really, really matters how you treat your wife. In fact, look at how the verse ends. You are to be considerate, you are to treat your wife with respect so that nothing will hinder your prayers. If you fail to honour and respect your wife, it will damage your relationship with her. But it will also damage your relationship with God. If you refuse to listen to your wife, it might be that God will refuse to listen to you. It really matters how you treat your wife. And men, we will be held accountable to God for how we loved our wives and how we led our families. And so let me just ask you, how are you doing with this? Now remember, we follow the example of Jesus, the one who laid down his life for the good of his bride. Now, if you have the privilege of a Christian marriage, Don't take it for granted and don't fall asleep at the wheel. Love and lead your wife. Give time to your wife. Understand your wife. Pursue her heart. If you're not married to an unbelieving spouse, then my encouragement would be the same to to the women. Don't give up. Don't give in. Keep praying. Keep loving. Keep serving. God sees what you're doing. Maybe God is calling on some of us to repent today to admit our sinful neglect and to return to him. And if we do that, he will receive us and he will help us. Maybe God is calling on some of us to apologize to our wives. Maybe to apologize to our husbands. To admit where we've gone wrong and to make some changes. I hope and I pray that you can see this passage for what it really is. Not poisonous, but precious. Not oppressive or outdated, but a beautiful vision of marriage as God intended it to be. Wives who humbly and peacefully support and strengthen their husbands, and husbands who gently and intentionally lead and love 
their wives. And so let's pursue this vision together. Let's become men and women who embody these values. And let's do it for our joy, for the flourishing of our children, for the strengthening of our community, and for the glory of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, whatever situation we find ourselves in this morning, our prayer is not our will, but yours be done. Whatever our relationship status might be, Lord, our desire is to glorify you. And for those who are single, Lord, we ask that you would anchor their heart and their hope firmly in you and not in marriage. Reveal to us how much bigger and more beautiful you are than marriage or any other dream or desire. It's not always easy, Lord, but it's true that you are more than enough. Capture the hearts of our single people and secure it against all of Satan's lies. Thank you that we are complete in Christ and that you are at work in all things for our good. And I ask that our single people might find a place here where they can be loved, encouraged, and accepted by your people. Lord, I pray for those who were once married but are no longer. Lord, this also brings particular challenges and temptations and requires your healing grace. Please protect from bitterness. Please give the strength for forgiveness. And if possible, Lord, lead the way to reconciliation and peace. Lord, for those who are married but are on the brink of divorce, we don't pretend to know or understand the issues in these fractured relationships. We simply implore you for your name's sake and glory, come near to our friends. Preach peace to their hearts. Destroy the hostilities which have sabotaged their marriage. And Jesus, as a demonstration of the healing power of the gospel, for the welfare of the children, for the encouragement of other marriages in our church, for the spreading of your name in our community, intervene in these marriages. You are the great healer. Bring undeniable healing to the wounds in these marriages. Lord, for the married couples among us, we ask that you would grant them the grace and the strength to pursue and to realize the vision of marriage that we see here in your word. Grant our wives the strength to graciously love, support, and walk alongside their husbands. Grant our husbands the understanding to gently love, cherish, and lead their wives and their family for the glory of your name. And Lord, may our married couples know your presence in their joy and in their sorrow. Deepen their love for each other and sustain their commitment for all their days. We love you, Lord, and we humble ourselves before you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand? May the companionship of the man of sorrows and the power of the King of glory rest upon you all. Amen.